Well, weddings are a big deal. And they're a big deal for many reasons. And different parts of the wedding celebration are, are, are a big deal in their different ways. And, and in our culture, like in many cultures, maybe less than some and more than others, the meal of the wedding is kind of a big deal. I know when Andrew and Sarah got married, it was a big deal for me. The, the meal was very important to me. And so that's the part that I got most involved in. So I said to Sarah, I said, okay, Sarah, Sarah, we're going to go, we're going to negotiate what the meal is with the hotel. And so off we went. And so my big thing is there's nothing that beats roast beef. And so as I sat with the events coordinator, I said, okay, you know, what's the deal with the roast beef? How much is it per plate? All this sort of thing. And then I brought up my concerns, much to the embarrassment, I'm sure, of Sarah, who just kind of sat there wide-eyed watching me fighting over food. I said, all right, first of all, this roast beef. I want to make sure that you're not cutting it so thin that you can read a newspaper through it if you hold it up in the thing. So I said, no, no, it won't be that. So I said, okay, that's fine. And, um, and I want to make sure that we don't run out of roast beef, that everyone has enough. How do I know, you, you know when you're going to quit serving? And they said, listen, I promise you, you won't run out of roast beef. We won't run out. We'll keep serving that roast beef until the people quit coming. I said, okay, well, how are you going to know when the people are going to quit coming? I don't want you shutting down early just because people are... No, no, no. We count the plates. And when the plates are all back, the dirty plates, then we know we're done. So at the wedding ceremony, some of you are there. You may remember this. I said to people, listen, when you come time for that food, you hold on to that plate with a death grip. Because there's going to be suckers going around there trying to take that plate off you prematurely. You're going to make sure I get my money's worth and go back for at least two helpings. So don't let them take your plate or they'll take away the roast beef. And it worked out fine. <laughs> because, you know, for the sake of the guests, I didn't want to run out of food. And for the sake of my wallet, I didn't want to get ripped off. It's kind of an embarrassing thing. You run out of food. And that's, that's kind of what happened here in this, in this story that we're looking at this event in the life of Christ. Now, you remember the whole scheme of things, right? So we're kind of done the prologue. That's chapter one. And what we saw last time is there's a bunch of witnesses came and gave their testimony on some of the titles of Jesus. And if you remember, we said that there's some key words here in the, in the prologue. And what John is going to do through this whole little different deal here, through the book of signs and then the book of glory, he's going to work out until we come to the final. Whoa, I'm going to die here on this course. Ooh, that could be bad. No, I forgot what I was going to say. Oh yeah, the epilogue where things end up. Okay, so the whole thing is now, it's kind of like this court case. We've had some witnesses, and now John is going to start talking about the signs. Exhibit A, Exhibit B. There's going to be seven signs that he goes through here to prove his case that Jesus is in fact the Messiah, the Son of God, all of those different titles that we looked at last week. And so the first sign is right here. What's going to happen is that Jesus is going to show how, how four Jewish institutions actually point to him. And the one that he chooses to bring up first is a wedding. A wedding. Now think about that for a minute. If you're going to tell the story about how God is going to renew the entire cosmos, that all of creation is going to be changed, would you choose a wedding party? It's kind of weird to start with that. And I, I did honestly think, well, that's kind of, why would he choose? It's kind of a weird thing, you know, it's a wedding's that important, but I mean, compared to the cosmos, yeah. But then I, I reread a guy that I had a lecture from a number of years ago. He said, listen, really, when you think about it, it's not that surprising. 
Because if you think about where the story begins, way back in the Garden of Eden, one of the first things that happens is a wedding. Man and woman, Adam and Eve, created together. And this lecture, I don't know, I haven't read all the different creation stories of the different cultures, but, but he said it's kind of one of the unique things about, about, the, uh, about Genesis and about the Judeo-Christian understanding of creation is this whole thing of male and female and a wedding starting taking place. And so, and so the whole beginning starts with the wedding, and then as we go through the Old Testament and then into the New, the, the, one of the dominant images that God has in terms of how he relates of his desire for us, his intimacy with us, is, is this image of a wedding, of the bride which is his people and God who is the bridegroom. And then if we go all the way to the end of the book, the book of Revelation, it ends with a wedding. The great wedding feast of the Lamb. And so this whole story is, is, can be captured and, and, and seen as a wedding. And so in that sense, if you understand what John's doing, he's saying, listen, what's going to happen here is I'm going to talk about the beginning again and the new beginning. I'm going to start with a wedding feast. A wedding feast, which points forward to the great wedding feast of the Lamb. Because you see, this whole great institution, Judeo-human institution of a wedding, is really just an illustration it's really just an illustration of God's intimacy with his people. And those of you who are married, you get to live in the illustration. And those of you who are not married, you get to skip the illustration and live in the fulfillment of what marriages and weddings actually just point to. And so you can see, as we've been trying to lay out for us here with this great chart that, that, that Dave did for us, which came from the uh, Mackey. Yeah, yeah. So is that this whole thing is structured and there is a purpose. And there's a great purpose in this miracle of Jesus changing water into wine. Because what he wants us to understand is that Jesus is bringing about change for the sake of change. This miracle is going to have a purpose. All right, let's take a look at it get the overview. On the third day... Of the, a wedding took place, the Cana. So this is the third day after the seventh day, because remember that prologue is the first week. So three days later, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they ran out of beef, I mean wine. <laughs> they have no more wine. Woman, it's Mother's Day, woman wasn't really, but why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour, my time has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, look, just do whatever he says. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for purification ceremonial washings. And each holding them from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill up those jars with water. And so they filled them right to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from. Though the servants who drew in the water knew 
And then he called the bridegroom aside. Hey, buddy. <laughs> Everyone brings out the choice wine first. And then the cheaper wine after the guests who have had too much to drink. But you saved the best till now. This is good stuff. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Okay, so what we're going to see here is Jesus bringing about a whole bunch of changes for change's sake. And the first changes we see happen right here at the wedding. And it starts off with that whole big deal of Jesus saying, Woman, what has that to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Well, quite a passage to have on Mother's Day. And gallons and gallons and gallons of ink have been spilled trying to show that Jesus was not being rude to his mother and he actually loved his mother. All that stuff. Well, that's not the point. You see, what's going on here actually has to do with this first change. Because the first change that we see here in this wedding feast of Cana is Mary being changed from a position of authority to the position of a disciple. There's a transformation that's happening in this time in Mary's place. Woman is not, we, we all understand this, you've all heard sermons because you've been to Mother's Day you know, before. A woman is not rude in that culture. As a matter of fact, the next time we don't see Mary again, the next time we see Mary is at the foot of the cross and when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he sees his mum down there and he sees John down there and that's where he says, woman, behold your, well, he wasn't waving his arms around because he nailed to a cross. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And so in this, it was an act of tenderness. So we don't take that. But let me tell you something. I don't want to overstate that. Because his next words, actually, some people say it was a Jewish idiom, but there's other writings where we find it in. And they're actually quite stern words. What's that got to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Those words are kind of, woman, not harsh. Those words, kind of harsh. A little bit tougher. He said, because my time or my hour hasn't yet come. Now, one of the things that you watch for in the Gospel of John are these, these cold words, right? These, these tricky words, you've seen them. And one of those cold words that you'll see again and again and again is hour or time. And you'll see it again and again through John, his time was not yet, his time was not yet, his time was approaching, his time was not yet. And this is what's happening here. <clears throat> and so what's going on is this. Jesus' life, in every circumstance, was overshadowed by the cross. Because the ultimate hour, the time, it says, when Jesus knew his time would come, was Jesus on the cross. And what he's saying is that, listen, you know, things are not going to be fulfilled yet. I've got this shadow hanging over me, and it's the cross. And what's going to dictate my entire life, my entire story, every act that I undertake, is not what some human being wants. Even my mother. What is dictating my life is my mission from my father to go to the cross, to fulfill my hour, to complete my mission. 
As a matter of fact, you'll see this again and again as we go through the Gospel of John, where people will come to him, like his brothers, they'll come to him, hey, Jesus, because they were kind of skeptical, hey, Jesus, you know, anyone that wants to get famous, they go to the feast. Why don't you go to the feast? And what does Jesus say to them? Hey, go ahead up to the feast. I'm not going. And then what does he do? He goes. And so we'll see this kind of a theme where Jesus is saying, listen, what's going to drive me is the mission of the Father. What's going to drive my entire life is this calling that I have to die for the sake of all mankind. His public ministry had now begun and his relationship with his mother had changed. And she changes from the authority of a mother to the submission of a disciple. From the authority of a mother to the submission of a disciple. And we know she becomes a disciple. Because here's the mark of a disciple. The mark of a disciple is, do whatever he tells you to do. You want to know if you're a disciple of Jesus? It's really simple. Do I do whatever Jesus tells me to do? As wacky as it may sound, as tough as it may sound... As glorious as it may sound, as happy as it may sound, whatever the case is, the mark of the disciple is just do whatever he tells you to do. Even if it seems kind of weird, like fill up these jars with water because I'm going to take care of the situation. And Mary is this great example of what we looked at a few weeks ago of our identity markers. We all have all kinds of identities. I mean, that's a pretty good identity. Yeah, I was actually the mother of the savior of the world. But it changes. So I'm a disciple of the Son of God. So whatever it is that is our main identity marker, whatever it is that we clamor for fame or we clamor for position or whatever the case may be, that has to be subservient to being a disciple of the Son of God. So first change, from a position of authority to the position of the disciple. Second change, from shame to dignity. Mary was motivated in asking her son Jesus to make this difference uh, because of her love for the family. The wine had run out. And wine was in that time incredibly important. It was more important, if you can believe it, than roast beef. Because wine is this incredible symbol in that culture because it's an incredible symbol in the scriptures. It's a symbol of joy. It's a symbol of abundance. It's the great symbol of a blessing. This is what wine meant. This is what the abundance meant all the time through. Remember, you know, when they were, went in to take the promised land into Canaan, remember what did they pack out? A great big bunch of grapes, right? And so this abundance and blessing, that's what it stood for. And so for, for this bridegroom who was responsible to make sure that there was enough, enough food and drink at this wedding, it was an incredible point of shame that they would run out of wine. And the suspicious amongst the guests may even say, uh, bit of an omen, buddy. You're maybe not going to get the joy you hoped you would. Maybe you're not going to be as blessed as you would. I mean, the symbols. And so, you know, some of the superstitions. This was a huge, shameful thing that the family would have, to, would have to live with. But Jesus is going to step in and make the difference. What Jesus actually does, and this is kind of tricky. We've got to do a bit of mental gymnastics to get this. Jesus takes the role of the bridegroom. He provides the good 
wine. He covers up the lack of the human bridegroom and steps in and does what the bridegroom could not do, provide the wine, provide for the people. And he covers up and takes away the shame of the bridegroom and their family. And in taking this role of the bridegroom, John's giving us another hint. He's saying, actually, I'm going to kind of point ahead to the great wedding feast of the Lamb. When you will see that I am, in fact, the bridegroom, and you, my people, are, in fact, my adored, cherished, beautiful, washed clean, pure bride. That's who you are because of my blood, my red blood, like red wine. And so there was a change in the bridegroom's life and the family's life and my life and your life from shame to dignity. Well, those, those changes happen immediately and we see what they are, but, but as we look forward, there are more changes that happen. There, there's a change in time that's going to be happening here. And the first change that we see in time is there's going to be a change from purely purification to celebration. The purification is going to remain, but to the purely purification, there's going to be great celebration added. Now, here's what you need to know. You may already know this, but in, in the Jewish religion, there are many, many rituals that had to do with washing. And so you can read some of the laws and you can read some of the rabbis teaching and there's particular ways that they had to wash. Everyone that was at this wedding that came to that, they would have had to wash their hands. All of the, there's these ritual purifications. If you go to Israel and you go to the Temple Mount there, I, I didn't realize this before I got there, but there's like dozens and dozens of dozens of baptism tanks in front of the temple because they used to have to walk through there, have this purification before they went into the temple. So this huge need for water of purification that the law, the Torah, required of them to have. And now Jesus is going to put a whole new spin on the idea of purification and getting clean before God. He's going to add to it incredible celebration. It's, I mean, the Jews did have celebration about that. Don't get me wrong. They, they, they know how to celebrate. But Jesus is going to ramp up this whole thing of celebration. And he's going to turn the purifying water into wine, the symbol of joy and blessing and celebration. And he's going to make liters and liters and liters, 600 liters of the stuff, 180 gallons of the stuff, 1,000 bottles of wine of the stuff. Incredible abundance. And he did this after they'd already drunk all of the wine for the party that the family had supplied. Now, whenever I read this passage, I'm reminded of a time I got into big, big trouble. I was preaching at another church, far away, different province, you know, a week of meetings kind of a deal thing. And, and so when I, I wanted to preach on this passage, and so I told it as a story. And in this story, I invented a guy called Uncle Amos. And I had this whole thing that Uncle Amos was a bit, you know, renowned for getting a bit too much into the wine, and that's why they ran out, so they drank all the wine and all this. And I kind of made this big kind of a deal about this whole thing. Oh, man. So after I was 
<laughs> done. This, this lady comes up to me, and man, did she tear a strip off of me about <laughs> this whole thing. Oh, you know, drunkenness. Blah, 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 blah. Now, it wasn't here, so you know, someone else is tough, you have to be extra nice. So I didn't say anything. But I want to think my whole time, that word means drunk lady. That's what the word literally means. What the banquet master says, when everyone else is hammered, like this bunch, that's when they bring out the bad stuff. Now, of course, we're not advocating drunkenness. We know that that's not right and that, 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 all that stuff. So just to be clear, in case. But Jesus was more concerned about covering somebody's shame and more concerned about providing abundant, extravagant, joyous celebration than he was about the possibility about his blessings being abused. Man, we need to get this into our hearts so much. One of the greatest gifts to the church are people that know how to throw a good party. People who've got the gifts of hospitality. People that have people over and when you go, you know it's going to be a good time because they just make sure that it's a good time and, and they get people together and there's laughter and there's singing and there's dancing and there's joys and there's stories and all these things. They are an incredible gift that God gives to the church. Christians should be known for throwing the best parties going of extravagant things where people are just, nothing ever runs out, it's just fun and you've got to you know, boot people out at three in the morning because they're still there having a good time. And you got church tomorrow, which is going to be, hopefully, should be, a continuation of a celebration and party. I don't know how it got into Christian culture to be dour or whatever. I mean, when I was in seminary the last time, we were laughing all the time. There was only 14 of us in my little program there. And, uh, and one time we came out of a break, or we go, yeah, we were going back to, to class, and uh, somebody had said something funny, and so we were all laughing and so on. And so this dude was there who was visiting, and he says to us, like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. <laughs> this is quoting Ecclesiastes, biblical scholar. I just want to say, get back in your buddy, buggy buddy, because he's kind of old. Get back. I don't know. How did that happen? How did it happen that when a bunch of guys having a great time, that somebody says, oh, you know, we've got to shut this sucker down here. It has the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools then I'll be a fool. Yeah. And we should all be fools. Because Jesus, he's about the purification of our lives. He's about washing us clean. He's about the forgiveness of our sin. He's about covering up our shame. He's about making up for our lack. And he's about giving us life in abundance. And he's about partying and laughing and good food and good drink and good fellowship and good times. He moved from purely purification. And he does all of that. But he added to our lives incredible celebration. And so we celebrate. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord. And we won't be quiet. We'll shout out our praise. That's what the whole thing is about here when we're singing these songs. It's this celebration that we're not just purified, we're not just forgiven, we're not just washed clean. Our lack has not just been given up, but we have the abundant life before us that we can partake into the degree, whatever measure we'll allow ourselves to do, because we hold ourselves back more than Jesus would. Maybe because we're afraid to abuse the blessing or something, I don't know what. Well, so he changed from pure purification. The other change that's going to happen, he's going to change from the old 
to the new. Now, a couple of things you've got to understand to really see what's going on here. First thing that we need to understand, which maybe isn't uh, clear to many of us, is that, is that water for the Jewish people represented the Torah. Okay? It represented the cleanliness. It represented uh, giving life. I, I was reading some Jewish sources on this because you've got to try and check these things out, you know, with the people that really talk about this stuff. And uh, one, one website, I was, one article I was reading on a conservative Jewish website said, listen, you want to know why we, here's, when, when we came out of Egypt and we traveled for three days after crossing the Red Sea, then there was no water and the people complained and the people were going to die and they were really, really thirsty. So it is that you must never go more than three days without hearing the water of Torah. Okay, that's kind of that's kind of where they get that thing, all right. So, so that's the way that, that it goes. And so, and so, this water in these jars, water represents Torah, the old covenant. Okay, Ten Commandments and all that stuff. That's what that represents. Second thing that you need to understand, and you probably know this one, um, is that seven is the perfect number. Seven is the perfect number. Seven is the number of completion. That's why there's going to be seven signs and it comes, you know, seven days here and seven days in the end. Seven is a big deal uh, in, in, in Jewish understanding and it's a big deal in John. Okay, so those are the things that you need to understand. Now, there were six jars representing Torah, which is pretty good. It's pretty good stuff. But it's not perfect. It's not complete. It's not all the way that God wants to bring it. There's something yet to come. And of course, Jesus is the completion. Jesus is the seventh jar. He is the one who will bring God's plan to perfection and completion. And he will change the the Torah of water into blood red wine to bring about the complete purification, the complete celebration, the complete ultimate covenant of God with his people. This is the new covenant, the new age of the Messiah. Remember, one of the witnesses said, hey, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ. And this miracle is Jesus saying, guess what? The age of the Messiah, the age of the new kingdom has come. There's this great passage written by uh, written down with the prophet Isaiah, like, you know, 700 years before Jesus. You look at it, Isaiah chapter 25. Let's look at it. And see if you, this rings a bell for you. On this mountain, the Almighty will prepare a rich, a feast of rich food, probably roast beef, for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. What is that? That's death. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. You see what John's doing? You see how this wedding feast was a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 700 years before that say a day is coming when God is going to swallow up death so that we can swallow up the finest things of God and the life and the celebration that he has come to give us. 
And then as you read some of the scholars, they say, you know, that Jesus is this great completion. He's the one that does this. He's the fulfillment of the messianic age. And the other thing that the wine is going to celebrate is the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, you're getting a little bit further onto the outskirts of, of exegesis with that. But, you know, you think about what Paul said. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Why? Because of the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, all of these things, these marvelous, wonderful, empowering qualities of the Holy Spirit that he builds into our life as he transforms us into the image of Jesus, which leads to the joy of worship so that we will in fact shout out our praise in a great party every time that we get together. Now, here's the thing. The emphasis of this passage, we tend to think, I don't know about you, but we tend to think about the, the, the quality. A thousand bottles of wine for a hundred people. Whew. But the emphasis that John puts on is not the quality, not the quantity, but the quality. Because what is it that the, the wedding master does? He comes and he calls the bridegroom and he says, man, this wine is the best I've ever tasted. It's the quality. And it's this whole thing that Jesus is saying, listen, the quality of your life is going to be so much richer as you partake of the good feast that I'm laying before you. I will swallow death on your behalf so that you can swallow all the good things that God Almighty has in store. It's kind of the point of the passage comes down at the very end into verse 11 where Jesus says this what Jesus did here in Cain of Galilee was the first of the signs that's John's word for miracle he doesn't call them miracles he calls them signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed him it was the first one of these signs these things that point to the ultimate change, the change of a heart, the change of my heart, the change of your heart. And what brings about this change? Well, there's all kinds of special code words in here. The first code word in here is, for John is, is glory and sign. The one sign has to do with this whole thing. They're turning the water into wine. It's true. It was about compassion. It was about making up our lack. It was about giving us a life of abundance. It was all of those things, but it's not the key issue. The key issue of that changing water into the wine is that it points to who Jesus is. It points to Jesus being the Savior. It points to Jesus being the Messiah. Seven signs in John, and they all come to this ultimate and seventh sign where Jesus shows himself what it means to be the Messiah. Where in fact, he fulfills that other special word that we find in those passages in verse 11. His glory. Which we saw before, that glory in John is death on the cross. 
You see, glory is that which shows the visible manifestation of who God is. Glory is to see God's character. And what God says my character is, what my glory is, to love you enough to die for you so that you can have abundant life. That is my glory. And these signs, it's all towards pointing out that who I am, that I am going to give you the ultimate purification which causes the ultimate celebration. That is my glory. And as the disciples saw this first sign and they think about Isaiah because they were steeped in the Old Testament and they begin to see these things, they begin as the evidence mounts step by step Evidence by evidence, exhibit by exhibit, witness by witness, they come to believe who Jesus is. He is the one who is a God of mercy and in compassion dies in our place and swallows death so that we can have abundant life. It's the evidence to believe. Jesus brought about change for change's sake. The evidence to believe. For the disciples, as the signs mounted, they came to believe. But as I've said, there's this theme of a, of a court of law. And you're the jury. And this is exhibit A that John brings forward. You've heard some witnesses and now here's exhibit A. This Jesus turned water into wine. What do you make of that evidence? I mean, it's early days and maybe, you know, you've only heard from the first few witnesses and we've only had exhibit A, but maybe already you're ready to say, yeah, I can see it. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the one that gives redemption and purification and celebration. Or maybe you just need a few more witnesses and a few more signs, a few more exhibits, until you decide whether you're ready to change your identity and just do whatever he tells you to do. You're the jury. But now for a few days, the court's going into recess. Jesus, This stuff is so rich and so mind-blowingly profound. It's such a cause of celebration. It's such a marvelous thing that you cover our shame, that you make up our lack, that you swallow up death, that you give us abundant life, signified by a great feast of celebration. Lord, I pray for those of us that, that, that believe the signs, that would name ourselves disciples, that you'd help us give up anything that may be a primary identity marker in our life that's not disciple. We can keep them. Today we honor mothers. Great title, great identity. But not as great as being a follower of Jesus who, who just does what you tell us to do. So help us to be true and right disciples. To give thanks for our purification, but Lord, to, to be ones who celebrate, who won't be silent, 
because there is joy in our house. And so we shout out our praise. And Father, for any who are here who are just sort of, you know, here cause mum's here, maybe. I pray that this sign, this exhibit A, might begin to build a foundation of belief in their life. We pray this through Jesus, our glorious bridegroom. Amen.